Greetings across whatever you listen to podcasts on. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. Hi, I'm your host, Ben Modell. I'm a silent film composer, accompanist, historian, presenter, home video label, etc., etc. This is episode 49, and we are recording this in the middle of June. I don't know when you're listening to it. I am joined, as always, by co-producer and co-host Kerr Lockhart. Wow, it is really summer now. It's really feeling like summer, and you're doing a lot of summer shows. You're getting around now. Yeah, it's it's slowly, the, the melt continues, and I have things coming up in July, and pretty much through most of the rest of the year. We're not up to full speed. We're not at a second gear <laughs> in terms of that, but it's, it's slowly coming back. I have maybe a half dozen in-person shows a month instead of the usual 12 to 15 pre-COVID, but I have enough home video releases to work on to keep me busy when I'm not dusting off my black suit and colorful ties to go out and play somewhere. So you were in my neck of the woods down in Silver Spring recently to accompany Camille, not Greta Garbo. Yes. <laughs> no, not the Greta Garbo one. This is the Camille that stars Nazimova. I think that's how you... Pre- we we kept all, all of us going back and forth. Is it Nazimova? Nazimova? But I think Nazimova is the more Russian that uh, pronunciation. Russian, and yeah. Valentino, which you pronounce Valentino. Valentino, most people do. And the show was held at the AFI Silver at the tail end of April because April is World Art Deco Month. Don't you know? I, I actually hadn't learned that until the previous year when uh, I did a stream, a live stream of this film for the AFI Silver that was co-sponsored or co-presented by the Art Deco Society of Washington, D.C., both the stream and uh, the the in-person show we just did. And the, the, the live stream went over extremely well. We had a really nice, quote-unquote, turnout in our virtual silent movie theater. Uh, had a lot of a lot of great feedback afterwards. And, and the, the film is really quite good, especially for when it was made and everything. And... Todd Hitchcock from the AFI Silver had contacted me about that they wanted to do something for Art Deco Month with the Art Deco Society of Washington, D.C., and they were looking for a really Art Deco film. And, they, you know, there's Metropolis, but it's also kind of in the future, and it's not really super deco. And, and I remembered having played for Camille at the Metropolitan Museum of Art maybe 20 years ago at a time when there was a big gallery exhibit of Art Deco. And so I remember the strikingly dripping with Art Deco sets designed by Valentino's wife, Natasha Rambova. And so that's what we wound up doing the stream of. And as things began reopening in person, especially at the AFI Silver, I remembered this. And we had, after the stream, thought this would be great to do whenever it is we can go back in person because... For those of you who are not like Kurt Lockhart in in the, the Silver Spring area uh, and have not been to the AFI Silver, it is a late 1930s Art Deco theater. And uh, the idea of seeing this Art Deco film surrounded by Art Deco was just such a great fit. And so we wound up booking the show. Uh, we got the 35mm print from George Eastman Museum, which looked great up on the big screen. Uh, and I accompanied the film on... 
the electric theater organ that they have at the AFI Silver. It's an Allen organ, an Allen 4600 made in the late 1980s. And it's an unusual installation where there are speakers at the front and also at the back of the theater. One of the things I gave myself a note on in going in to accompany the film having had it semi-fresh in my brains from the stream the year prior, although that was on piano, was to try to hold back more, play simpler lines, and let the screen presence that Nazimova and Valentino have, I mean, he just burns up the screen, draw the audience up into that universe of silent film and just support that and keep the people up in it musically. And so what you're going to hear now is about three minutes or so from my live score for Camille, performed live in front of a real in-person audience, some of whom waved at me with one hand uh, before the show, (laughs) performed on an Allen 4600 electronic theater organ in Silver Spring, Maryland at the AFI Silver Theater.
live in performance at the AFI Silver Theater in Silver Spring, Maryland, a few minutes from my live score for Camille, starring Ala Nazimova and Rudolf Valentino. All part of your uh, vision quest to do more with less. Yeah, just trying to channel Lee Irwin a little bit and hold notes and turn stops off <laughs> and hold things and let the the screen and everything else that's up on the screen as well as the right brain experience our audience is having do all the work. Yeah, you're really, really playing a duet with another medium, a duet with images. Yes, in, in a way, and it's also a sort of collaboration with the audience mm-hmm. uh, unwittingly. So now for a, an extreme turn, there is a new compendium on Ernie Kovacs coming out this fall, yes? It's it's due out in November or December from Fantagraphics, and it's a book called Ernie in Kovacs Land. And Josh Mills and Pat Thomas and I have been working on this for a bunch of years, and it's a big deep dive, dumpster dive, what have you, <laughs> of all sorts of things that Ernie wrote doodled and gave interviews about over his long television career. It's been fun as things kept turning up, seeing things that I had surmised were probably in existence or had actually happened, like Ernie's handwritten notes for the Eugene movie he was planning to make had he not died uh, at a young age in 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 an automobile accident, Uh, as well as there are behind-the-scenes stills, chapters from unpublished manuscripts, interviews with Ernie from publications that haven't been seen since they were originally published. So whenever it is, it does come out. It will be a lot of fun. And I've had a a blast going through all the images and bits of text that Josh Mills has unearthed from the many, many, many boxes of stuff (laughs) his mom, Edie Adams, saved. I just want to walk back a second. So he was actually planning a dialogue-free comedy. Yes, he absolutely was. And I think that in this era of the advent of Monsieur Hulot, when Jerry Lewis is making similar types of films uh, like... Well, The uh, Bellboy. Well, The Bellboy and The Errand Boy and uh, and Ladies' Man, where you have this sort of semi-mute, fish-out-of-water character wandering through uh, a non-linear narrative uh, in a specific setting... Uh, much like Mr. Hula's Holiday and the slightly more story-driven Mononcle, Kovacs uh, had been toying with this idea of making a movie out of Eugene. He talks about it in an interview for a show on the Canadian broadcast company called The Lively Arts in the summer of 1961. And he mentions the entire opening sequence shot by shot down to what lens he would use and the fact that his idea was that Alec Guinness would play Eugene in the movie. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and that was the only clue I had that such a thing was in the offing. Uh, but Josh Mills turned up several pages of notes, uh, uh, some pages of typed notes for a Eugene movie. And so I do think be- because Kovacs had remade his quote-unquote silent show, originally done at live in color in 1957 with his Eugene character. He remade it in 1961 as one of his ABC specials, bumping the special he had originally taped for the November 1961 slot into December 
and then taping and airing the Eugene special in November. Also, instead of their usual graveyard shift, 10.30 Thursday night following the Untouchables slot, uh, the Eugene special was aired on the Friday night of Thanksgiving weekend, preempting the Flintstones. Wow. So, so I know, you know, thanks to the 1977 PBS series, that special is one of the first impressions a lot of my generation got of Ernie. I think that's a landmark for people my age. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I think that my theory, my theory is that part of why he wanted to remake this and air it as, was sort of as a pilot to show people, yes, I can do this. This can work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just never got to the stage of having a, a typed screenplay again because of his un, uh, untimely demise in January of 1962. That television work, especially the one from 1961, is the first. It's probably the place most of us know the wrong note polka from <laughs> right. by Shostakovich from the ballet The Golden Age. Now, what is this doing on the silent film music podcast? So the impending arrival of that book offered an opportunity, we thought, to talk about Ernie Kovacs' relationship with music. He was very musical. He loved music, and he used it in interesting and different ways. And some of them relate to the way music is used in silent films, and others do not. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, But it's an interesting colloquy because... There's nothing haphazard or casual about it. Um, no, his choices are they're way in outer space most of the time, but they're very <laughs> specific and very deliberate. And as we record this in mid-June, you've recently published a blog post talking about his famous theme, Oriental Blues. Most of us know it as an outro. It's occasionally apparently an intro and uh, in lots of different versions. So let's just talk generally, what is Oriental Blues? Neither Oriental nor Blues, discuss yeah. among yourselves. Yes. Um, <laughs> but what, what is it? How did it become the theme? Why is it a theme? Why is it that, why are there multiple versions? What does yeah. it mean? <laughs> yeah. Ernie Kovacs, after being in radio for several years during the 1940s, wound up working in television in Philadelphia at WPTZ, or Channel 3, which was the NBC affiliate in that area. He wore all sorts of hats. It was the very, 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 very beginning of television, and he was either hosting a cooking show with local chefs or a a, a local fashion show or you name it. The Um, biggest qualification for TV in those days was the ability to fill up time. I'm just old enough to remember that uh, children's show hosts routinely had four or five-hour programs. You just were marathon runners. Uh, Because there was all this time available, there was very little programming that had been made for television. In Ernie's case, we're talking uh, the first couple of years, of 1950, 51. There is no library or catalog to go to to put anything on. And maybe in the evening they'll put on an old movie, but the daytime... It's just go out there and do something. Just keep the lights on. Yeah. And so Kovacs was given a 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. wake-up show called Three to Get Ready. Three as in WPTZ Channel 3, which ran through 1952 when NBC decided to launch a national show in the same time slot called Today, which is still running. 
but it bumped Ernie from from that slot and eventually from WPTZ. In March of 1951, Ernie was given a 15-minute daily weekday show called It's Time for Ernie. His musical accompanists for the show was the Tony Simone Trio, a local group from, from the Philly area. And they had recorded this piece called Oriental Blues, which is it's basically a ripoff of Rialto Ripples by George Gershwin. And why don't we take a second here to hear each of those side by side. Okay. Let's first do, here's the Gershwin, Rialto Ripples, uh, one of his early pre-Broadway pieces. So that was a few seconds of Rialto Ripples. And so, so you can see how the tune sort of starts there and goes elsewhere. Here is the Tony Simone recording of Oriental Blues. <laughs> Is this something that Tony DeSimone was playing on the show and then then I'm not, recorded I'm not, on the studio or something? I'm, I'm not really sure because the, the recording makes its first appearance in March of 1951 when they did three sort of pilots for It's Time for Ernie, uh, one of which survives. Ernie even says this is the, the first of three or the second of three, so that that's how we knew what, what the air date was. And then there's one episode from the show's actual run from mid-May through the end of June. Again, thank you, Edie Adams, for saving everything. But the the recording already existed uh, by this point, as did the the published sheet music. There's information about Jack Newland, who quote unquote created the piece uh, and the publication of it, as well as the recording on my blog. And if you go to silentfilmmusic.com/blog and type in you know search for Oriental Blues, or Ernie Kovacs' theme song, you'll get all, all the background on it. We'll also link it in the show notes. So that recording is the theme for It's Time for Ernie, where in 1951 he opens with a cold open sight gag, and we cut to a title that's the main title of the show, and there's a title that says, The Shortest 15 Minutes in Television, and the next title says, They Just Seem Long. <laughs> Who's doing that kind of self-referential humor while the medium is being invented? You know, you, you associate that kind of humor with the, the Letterman writers in the in the 90s or 2000s, but this is 1950-51. Like is the case with a lot of music that Kovacs would use for specific kinds of sketches, the theme song follows him from show to show to show. It's the theme song for the summer replacement for Kukla, Fran, and Ollie that... Ernie had nationally in 1951 called Ernie and Kovacs Land, uh, which is the show they hired Edie Adams uh, for, and she's also stuck, uh, <laughs> uh, as well as Kovacs on the Corner, a midday kids show kind of thing. It goes with him to Kovacs Unlimited, the show he did daytime for CBS, 52 to 54, and then onward to uh, the show on Dumont, 54 to 55, and uh, at at this point, when he gets hired by NBC, there's a live band, but they're playing that piece. And on and on, all the way right up to the end. 
Another recording was done by Leroy Holmes and his Tugboat 8, as they are called on the record label on MGM Records, around the time that Ernie is tag team hosting Tonight, which became The Tonight Show, tag team hosting with Steve Allen. Leroy Holmes was the band leader for the the Tonight Show stint. The version of the Oriental Blues theme that we're all probably most familiar with from the Best of Ernie Kovacs compilation shows, and because it draws from the ABC specials, was never published uh, or released as a single or anything. We know absolutely nothing about it. We don't know who's on it. And I had always thought that that recording was done for the ABC specials, but in going through all two seasons of Take a Good Look, uh, the bizarre panel quiz show that Ernie Kovacs had just prior to making the ABC specials. And which, thanks to Ben, is available on home video. Well, thanks especially to Josh Mills and to uh, the Library of Congress and mainly Shout Factory. They put out the box set. When they said, we need to put out more Kovacs, I said, the fans are asking for a Take a Good Look. So, And especially, once again, Edie Adams saving t- the two-inch quad masters on, on all this stuff. The second season opens with that theme song. The first season has just something that sounds like stock music. Kovacs had written a, a song called Take a Good Look, but it's about a guy leaving his wife, and he's upset that she's played around on him, and he's telling her, take a good look as I leave out the door. And that's not a that's not a game show <laughs> theme, Ernie. Terrible. But, you know, that's Ernie. And so they may have just hastily grabbed something, and it just became what they used for the first season. Just for uh, but, fun, let's, again, let's do an A-B. Let's listen to this familiar ABC special version. And then I want to go back to Tony DeSimone for a yeah. second. And let's just see they're different and maybe... Maybe there's a hypothesis of why it was re-recorded. So here's the ABC version that those of us that first saw Ernie on the Best Of series, this is what we know. And now here's the Tony DeSimone. I just wanted to, I know we heard it, but let's just put it side by side. Mm-hmm. 
There they are. I told you, Ben, that uh, my son and I uh, use that theme as a signal for uh, stick a fork in it. This is over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's got a real elbows out feel to it. Uh, a phrase that I'm sure many people in the theater know, but I first heard it from Edie. The 1960 recording is almost identical, but there's a couple of notes here and there in the first couple of bars and the last couple of bars of the main theme that are slightly different. Not different enough that it was like, oh, we're trying to get around copyright. It's pretty much the exact same thing. It just may have been something that whoever recorded that version liked doing. Mm -hmm. And it just stayed in. The Leroy Holmes record is exactly the notes and notation and melody of of the original. I have a feeling, though, that if Ernie was the one who had paid for that new recording, there would be a master tape of it in the Ediad Productions <laughs> archive. And there would also is... be probably be a lot more players. Or Ernie would have spent more money. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like in did. <laughs> right. Like, like in when he, you know, when he did the special Kovacs on music, it's a huge symphony orchestra conducted by Andre Previn. And that's you know, getting thing... the full John Williams kind of treatment, although the arrangements by Peter Matz. But that's the irony of the Oriental Blues because Ernie had very serious and sophisticated taste in music. Oh. And yet he tied himself to this really dumb song. I'm reminded of Gene Shepard often got asked about his theme, which was a, a polka called Free Track done by one of the lesser Strausses, uh -huh. like a black sheep of the Strauss family. <laughs> And it's and it's endless. It's two minutes long, which in radio is, is incredibly long. And people said, why do you hang on to that terrible theme, this rotten polka? And it's, he's, he said, it's, it's, it's to chase the non-fans away. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah. and I, I wonder if there's something I'm, deliberate about the badness of it, Oriental it, Blues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's... I don't know how, how bad it is. It just it lets you know you're in for a good time, certainly. And yes, and, it's going but, to be but, silly. But, Things will be silly yeah, now. Yeah, and now it's it's sort of his. And uh, now for something completely different, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, especially if you you've been watching The Untouchables, and as soon as you hear, okay, time for bed. And uh, <laughs> it's that weird. Co unless you were, you know, one of the people who we couldn't wait for the Untouchables to be over so you could watch the Kovacs. Show. Right, and of course it's that era. If we're talking about the ABC specials, we're talking about that era of uh, silent film revival and ragtime revival, hand in hand, where you're playing. It's always a, a piano deliberately uh, tuned out of tune, uh, yeah. and but like metal inserted, and it'll be really you know rinky tink. Yeah, uh, and uh, and the 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 uh, the films will be the worst prints we can possibly find. Oh, good heavens! Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, that's it could have what... been one of those one of those people who who released uh, rag honky tonk ragtime records under the name Knuckles O'Toole and stuff like that. And, yeah, and it may and it may have just been you know that that record with Tony De Simone had been around for nine or ten years and existed on a on a worn out forty five or 78 and there was no master tape recording and just for the issues of sound quality it might have been better to just let's get let's, a, a small combo together and get, get a, a new recording get a clean one yeah yeah all right well here's one more from the road a part of the oriental blues you may not know as well here's the ending as it appears on the tony d simone trio recording <laughs> Thank you. 
the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell is brought to you by Undercrank Productions, home of the neglected and the unexpected in classic film. The Bride's Play stars Marion Davies as Aileen, a convent girl enamored of the legends and tales of her native Ireland. Upon entering adulthood, she falls in love first with a nobleman, then with a romantic poet played by Carl Miller. After learning about the poet's hidden life, Eileen instead embraces her nobleman and agrees to marry him. In their lavish wedding ceremony, she reenacts the legendary Bride's Play, in which the bride asks a line of men if they are her one true love. The poet races to attend the wedding in hopes that it is he after all, and Eileen's one true love is revealed just in time. Released in January 1922, The Bride's Play is a cosmopolitan production featuring excellent cinematography, costume design, and art direction, and seen here in a scan from an archival 35mm print preserved by the Library of Congress with its original color tinting digitally restored, and with a new piano score by Ben Modell. DVD Talk says, The film is enjoyable and fun, and Marion Davies is delightful. Ben Modell's score accentuates the action on the screen. A strong recommendation. Thrilling Days of Yesteryear writes, Those involved with this restoration should take a victory lap. It looks magnificent, and the score Ben composed is positively pluperfect. Preserved by the Library of Congress and produced for DVD by Ben Modell for Undercrank Productions in association with Edward LaRusso, The Bride's Play is available from Amazon, Deep Discount, Critics' Choice, and WOW HD. The Bride's Play. Starring Marion Davies. So, back to silent film, and you created a score for one of the absolute war horses. Almost literally, yes. Yeah, and <laughs> I would I would be willing to bet this is the most screen silent feature film in we existence. Are, we're and we're we're talking of course about the general with Buster Keaton. Which and, has been uh, on the sight and sound list since nineteen sixty two of the best films of all time. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's getting, you know, with the two Buster Keaton books out now, the one by Dana Stevens and the other one by James Curtis, there have been so many Keaton film screenings. I know I, I did a show of The General with Dana at the Jacob Burns Film Center earlier this year. And it's one of the films that everybody knows because it was always in the public domain and was always on television. Not always. It was on television often enough that, oh, there's the one with the train. It was part of the Silent Years package, etc., uh, etc. Et so the remarkable thing I think about the film, and this is germane to what we're going to be talking about in terms of the music, is that... Some people object to it being a representative of silent film comedy because they say it's not very funny. It's not the funniest silent film. It's not even Keaton's funniest, let alone the, the funniest silent feature there is. Yeah, uh, and I, supposedly when it was released, there were you know there's uh, some objections from critics as to not only the lack of hilarious gags, but you know there there are moments that involve people <laughs> dying. <laughs> but today we are we like genre benders or things yeah. that blend different styles. We're more at home with that. And yeah. I, I always looked at this over there. We're going to listen to your company or your company is going to pass through 
I think the single most interesting moment in the film and one of the most interesting moments in Keaton's entire oeuvre, ooh, I used a bet French word. There you go. Um, And and to me, this is the litmus test of whether you're going to like Keaton. Um, Mm. Because again, it may or may not be funny, but it is so Keaton-esque. And it is a a moment, I'm trying to describe it for people, for the two people who haven't seen the film, um, where he must remove a railroad tie sitting on top of a track, not in the bed, but it's sitting on top of the rail and would very likely derail the train if the train ran over. It's a huge... And it's it's too large and too dangerous to actually lift it up off the track. And, and Keaton is on it. And he comes up with this ingenious solution of lifting another tie over his head, pointing one end of it at, at an end of the tie that is on the rail, and striking it, and the two of them fold up like a fan folding. Um, and, and flip both... off the track. And and remember, this is all happening while Keaton is perched on the cow catcher on the front of a moving train. Yeah, they're actually... With the camera, tr- camera on another train just ahead of it. And they're moving, you know, probably between 5 and 10 miles an hour. Uh, yeah, it, actually... might, it may seem a little faster, but, you know, they're cranking at 16, most probably. Uh, for for playback at twenty, well, it was intended to be shown closer to hundred feet a minute. But, it's uh, but it, we were all watching it at twenty four, and it's surprising you don't see it coming. Nobody does. What I love about the gag, and the reason I wanted to share this recording as we are all moving back into in person screenings, is that you're going to get to hear something that without fail happens at every show I've ever played of the general, which is when this gag happens, the audience is so satisfied with the gag, they break out into applause. Like you said, it's a very specific gag, and it's something that could only happen from the mind of someone with an engineering brain Mm -hmm. uh, and not just uh, slapstick comedy. But just the the idea for it is just... uh, it's, the surprise of it is so satisfying that people just clap. You know, you don't picture Harold Lloyd doing this, and then on the other hand, you say, well, it's kind of, as this, I say, it's not a comedy gag, it's a gag in terms of it's a piece of business in a film, but it, not a joke. So, But, oh, could Douglas Fairbanks or Wallace Reed do it? No, I couldn't see either <laughs> of them doing it. It is, it is yeah. so much uh, a, the most Keaton-esque moment. <laughs> yeah. And again, it's with the deliberate knowledge and understanding of what speed they were going to crank at, knowing the amount of speed up so that the two very heavy railroad ties that move at the speed that large railroad ties do uh, will not take forever and it will look like a bit of a bit of slaps to carefully planned and executed. This is a recording of a live performance I did in the middle of May at Epsilon Spires up in Brattleboro, Vermont. It's the third time I've gotten to accompany a silent film there on their historic Esty pipe organ in their wonderful reverberant space. This is a few minutes from my score for The General. And about two minutes in, you're going to hear that moment we've been talking so much about.
live in performance at Epsilon Spires up in Brattleboro, Vermont. Yours truly accompanying Buster Keaton's The General on an SD pipe organ. the challenges in playing for the general uh, even though this this particular show was actually the first time ever I'd ever accompany that film on an organ oh, is that it yeah is that it is one long chase mm. and as much as an audience really just gets into it and gets in the zone and goes along on the ride and enjoys it it is a bit of a challenge for someone sitting where I am, much like Harold Lloyd's Speedy, where the plot disappears for about 44 minutes in the middle of the film, and it's just gag sequences. It's not really a knock on Speedy. I actually have grown to gain great respect for the fact that Lloyd and his team could uh, hoodwink an audience into (laughs) not noticing that, oh, we're just going to do four reels of gags and drop the storyline completely, and you'll never notice. Because when I (laughs) pointed this out to people, they go, what? I love that movie. But for someone who is trying to follow a dramatic arc throughout, the general can be a challenge. Here's a guy who loves his train. Here are some people who steal his train. And then he spends the rest of the film trying to get it back. It could feel relentless. It, it is. And, and the challenge for me, when I faced uh, in the two shows I've done recently, is, okay, how do I pace myself? How do I not just play uh-oh and gag structure music and keep my sanity and, and, and entertain the audience? <laughs> it's, the audience, like I said, never has a problem with it. Mm-hmm. But for me... It's something to keep in mind, at least for me. Maybe everybody else who accompanies the journal has a grand time and doesn't have the same challenge as I do. But uh, the ride that Buster goes on is, I want my train back. Hey, I want my train back. Give me back my train. Where'd my train go? <laughs> there it is. No, that's not it. Where? Oh, it's now it's raining. Oh, hey, there's my train. I'm on the train. Try and catch me. And then the movie's over. It's just that one. That it's just that one beat. Now here's a general specific question. One of the neat tricks of the film is that it covers the same ground in two different directions. Yes, and it has essentially gags that mirror or answer each other from the first half of the film to the second half of the film. So if we're hit by the downspout from the water pipe in the first time, that water pipe's going to come back. Yeah. Do you make any effort to tie those matching sequences, no. mirror sequences? No, it's it's it would be something I could do for my own entertainment, <laughs> but no one is going to recognize because if, if you've only done a, a cue for something that's happened five reels ago and you've only done it once, no, no one's going to remember it later as a callback. If you've done a theme and you're playing it three or four times, by the third time it's like, oh yeah, that. Uh, one of the th- other challenges I've had in in accompanying the general is there's a gag. It's somewhere in the first third where there's a car of the train that is actually rolled in front of Buster. He thinks, you know, he hops off the engine while it's moving, makes some maneuvers with tracks, making something go to a separate parallel track, gets back on the train, and there it still is in front of him. And we cut to a reaction shot of Buster. (laughs) 
what where he looks. It's like almost a, a loose medium shot. It's one of the blinks. greatest reactions in all of silent film. And it's against a painted rotating dior- diorama, if that's the right word. So it it's sh- not location. Shot as an insert. Yeah. I have played shows where it doesn't get that much of a laugh. And I figure this must have gotten a laugh originally and was important enough to Buster that even if he was faking it, <laughs> you know, with this rotating background, it must have been something important well, it, enough to it, do. So I've tried a number of different things musically to make make it work. And I, I've, I've arrived at something that has worked the best uh, of the things I've tried. And I've tried, you know, doing the, you know, Carl Stolling blink, blink, uh, with, you know, that you know from the, the Roadrunner cartoons. I, I've tried a, a few things, and Mickey Mousing doesn't, it, it doesn't work. Uh, trying to get on the track of the internal thought process of Buster is what's helped me land on something that, while I'm still not certain it's the best thing, it has been musically the most effective thing at helping Buster elicit the laugh that he clearly felt was important to be there because he went back and reshot it in a fake way. Well, that's interesting because I don't know whether it was Hitchcock or Lubitsch or one of those people who define movies as pictures of people thinking. Oh, yes, and especially in silent film. And this is one of the things we cover in uh, one of the last sessions of the class I teach at, at Wesleyan is... Movies like Lady Windermere's Fan or Wrong Again with Laurel and Hardy, where we're just most of the film watching people think things through and try to guess what the other person in the room is up to over and over. We're on that segment of the silent film universe where you're inside the mind of the person where you're watching and getting in and trying to connect with what they're thinking and what they're thinking about the other person, and what the other person is thinking about them, and on and on. Yeah, and I, I think you could argue because of the unreality of the silent film universe, you get really far deeper into into the head of a character. Oh yeah. Do. There's a whole there's a whole sequence at the beginning of Lady Windermere's fan at, at the racetrack where we go from one person's POV to another without Lubitsch cutting back out from the vignetted shot of the POV of binoculars from one person looking through them to another person. We just go from here to there to there watching lots of different people's perspectives uh, from shot to shot to shot with no titles, no explanation. But at, by this point, you're that absorbed into that into that world that uh, you're not even thinking it, but you're going, oh, that's what this person is thinking. Mm-hmm. That's what this person... Just by giving, being given a visual clue. So, one of the great pleasures of summer, I think, and I'm sure most of people who listen to a podcast like this think, is going to see classic film. It's a great family activity, and you're going to be at a lot of showings for this summer. Yeah, it's been interesting to see how the second thaw of bookings has developed, and uh, like I mentioned earlier, I've got around a half dozen in-person shows a month set for now through most of the rest of the year. On July 14th, I'll be at Art Yard in Frenchtown, New Jersey, doing a program of comedy shorts as part of a series of, I believe, four days of programming that Dennis Doros and Amy Heller of Milestone Films are helping to put together for Art Yard. And so I'll be there 
On Saturday, July 16th, the Silent Clowns film series returns to the Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center at the Bruno Walter Auditorium. And we'll be doing a program of four shorts uh, starring, well, three of them star Charlie Chase, and the fourth one is a short he directed as Charlie Parrott, starring Snub Pollard. We're so pleased to finally be back in person at the Library for the Performing Arts, and we'll have shows again September and November of this year. Check local listings or our website, as they say. I will be in Blacksburg, Virginia on July 23rd, playing for a program of Buster Keaton shorts as a matinee, and for William Wellman's Wings at 8 o'clock. On Monday, August 1st, I'll be at the historic Strand Theater in Scroon Lake, New York, that's in the Adirondacks, and I'll be accompanying Buster Keaton's Steamboat Bill Jr. On August 13th, Saturday, I will be at the Ocean Grove Campground Association's Recital Hall accompanying Our Hospitality with Buster Keaton on a rather huge pipe organ. It's one of those ones with two walls of stop tabs that you turn on and off with a fly swatter. Although I, I won't be using a fly swatter for that. And I'll be back at the Library of Congress, Packard Campus, National Audiovisual Conservation Center, or NAVCC, uh, in Culpeper, Virginia, on August 20th for a couple of shows as well. And the Silent Comedy Watch Party will continue as a live stream once a month. And... I will continue doing a live stream presented by the Cinema Arts Center every other month. The Cinema Arts Center's monthly series in person will also continue month to month. Uh, go to cinemaartscenter.org to find out that schedule or get on my email list. But like I mentioned, I'm happy to be back doing more in-person shows. If you feel safe going to a movie theater uh, that's showing a silent film with live music, whether it's me or any of my colleagues, it's it's good. It's good for the soul, and it just there's nothing that takes you out of your reality uh, for an hour and a half or more. And boy, do we all need that yeah. right now! Then then a silent film in a theater with live music, and we'll have links to all those dates on the uh, the show notes. And while you're at it, go to wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review us. Five star is much appreciated. Not really to salve our ego, but because the way it works, more people can find the show if more people are enthusiastic about it. And wouldn't you like to know that a lot of people share what you're interested in? Yeah, it's it's really the 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 ripple effect that actually happens where instead of saying, hey, I really like this, or clicking on like, it actually helps boost the podcasts being recommended to other people with similar interests, whether it's interests that you share with them or that are, that are matched to the podcast. So you're absolutely right, Kerr. Everybody says, oh, like me on Facebook. But, you know, in this case, it's your way of helping more silent film fans find out about this podcast, if you like it. Well, that's our show. That's episode 49 of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist, composer, historian, educator, presenter, piano tuner, home video label, etc., <laughs> etc. So glad you welcomed us into your ears uh, once again. 
big thanks to Kurt Lockhart, co-producer and co-host, for keeping us on track and recording and posting on a regular basis. Thanks so much, Kurt, for all you're doing. It's always fun. And we look forward to popping into your podcast player again with our next episode. And I look forward to seeing you, quote-unquote, online or seeing you in person at a show somewhere soon. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you at the silence.